Welcome to True Nature Radio. I'm Lori Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. We're very happy to welcome today's guest, Dr. Paul Kalmans. He's an assistant professor in both the naturopathic and the classical Chinese medicine programs at the National College of Natural Medicine. We invited Paul because he has a pretty unique perspective on natural medicine. He has a very broad background in that he has training in Chinese medicine, training in naturopathic medicine, but also training in anthroposophical medicine, and in particular, his interest has gone into finding the deeper patterns within a Western holistic perspective. Is that fair to say, Paul? Yeah. So today we wanted to talk about how we can, a lot of people talk about integration within medicine, and typically what they mean is bringing different systems of medicine together in the same building. So the patient might be treated by a Western medical doctor and then treated by an acupuncturist or maybe a naturopath or an Ayurvedic practitioner. But what we want to talk about here is actually truly understanding how these medicines come together in the reality of nature. Paul, can you talk a little bit about your understanding of how Western medicine or allopathic medicine and natural medicine actually can be seen to be singing the same song maybe or talking about the same underlying reality? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, this is the greatest challenge right now is there's an interest in integrative medicine, but the idea about how to do that appropriately, I think, is is maybe missing a bit. Um, my interest actually started uh, after graduation. I worked in an integrative clinic where we brought together um, uh, medical doctors, osteopaths, uh, naturopaths, acupuncturists, and it was the idea that we can create a place where patients could be seen by multiple different physicians and receive different types of care. Um, one thing we initiated as soon as we started the clinic was pretty much a weekly or bi-weekly meeting where we would all come together, all the practitioners, and since we shared many of the patients, we would discuss them. And it was very obvious very quickly that um, we were, although talking about the same patients, it was as if we read, had completely different clients. Um, the discussion in terms of what was important um, was very different in each case. So with the medical doctors, there was the concern from the primary care angle of, you know, are we watching these parameters? Are we measuring the blood pressure? Are we doing the right labs? Are we, are we following that kind of procedural um, method? Uh, whereas with the acupuncturists and the other therapists, there was more of an interest in looking at qualities of the patient, their quality of life, but also physiological qualities. You know, was this patient really able to, for example, develop more flexibility in these issues, so more subtle types of physiological changes we were looking at. So I, that got me interested in exploring the issue again about, well, going back even further to the philosophy of what we're doing. And what, you know, it becomes clear very quickly when you look at philosophy of medicine is that one always starts with a certain ontology. That's sort of an idea of what the world is all about. And with that comes an epistemology, which is how do we actually know what we're looking at? How do we gather knowledge about the world? And something that was very clear was that the people sitting at that round table every week had very different ontologies and very different epistemologies. So that's why we essentially weren't coming together and weren't able to 
fully explore and maybe fully respect what other people were saying, just because we had such different uh, backgrounds in terms of what we thought the world was and what was important. So that that um, motivated me to begin to look at that question more seriously. What is the ontology of bio, the Western or biomedical approach to the patient? What is the ontology of the more traditional approaches to the patient? And then what are the ways of knowing that each approach uses? And how do we cultivate those modes? It seems like uh, indeed a very important thing that I myself see missing also in uh, the so-called integration nowadays. Integration has become a buzzword, and but most of the time it means you use the common scientific uh, modality of examining herbs or acupuncture under a microscope or in, in, a, in a petri dish and see what happens. And then if you can find something, then that's valid. And if you don't, then that's not valid. And as a result of that, then so many of the ancient modalities have been thrown out because the lens uh, doesn't fit. And so for me, the key is always in the symbolic approach, or what I myself call a symbolic approach, meaning that each methodology has a way of symbolically looking at the same reality and then describing it. And uh, so like you have the ancient Chinese and the ancient Egyptians looked at the same reality, uh, but they had different plants and animals in their surrounding and used those then as symbols. So it looks like they're describing something different, but it was the same thing. And I find uh, particularly your work as uh, very relevant there as somebody who's made an attempt to see beyond the surface language that the different systems are using and uh, see at the commonality uh, of the deeper language of each system. And I remember particularly uh, your first scholarly work on uh, Goethe, you know, so you we're not just talking about integration of Western medicine with alternative medicine, but even within alternative medicine, homeopathy has a totally different language uh, to express itself than Chinese medicine, for instance. And even there, if one comes from a overarching thought perspective, as you do, uh, you can find uh, uh, common, common ground there. Um, so I'm particularly interested in you know, is there a ontology or epistemology that is an overarching one, that one can understand all of these different systems if you spent the time to go into there? Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, that's the, the crucial question. Um, you know, something that I've been interested in just through my research is looking at the older views that are referred to currently as the alchemical views uh, mm. or the phenomenological views of nature. And what's interesting, if you kind of tease through the different ontologies, you see there's, there's two polarities, two possibilities. One is the modern biomedical ontology, which is really that everything is matter and that our job as researchers, for example, or as clinicians is to balance the matter is to look at how matter interacts causally and mechanically. And so reductionism, when we zoom in on the small parts, has, been, has become the methodology, has become that epistemology. The opposite view would be maybe more of a, a shamanic perspective, and that is that, well, there's matter, but really what's important is consciousness. There's a, 
everything stems from a sea of consciousness and then matter is something that arises from that, but our, our, the importance is to focus on the consciousness and the processes that arise in that field. Um, the alchemical view integrated both, and this is what's interesting if we go back in, in even the West here, in the Western science, back around the time of the Renaissance and just after, there were a number of physician scientists who had this view that we can look at the matter, and there was becoming more of an interest to look at matter, at the same time, we can hold a vision of higher processes, um, intelligent processes in consciousness. And I think what's happened in medicine and science in general is that that idea of any sort of intelligence in nature, any sort of higher order, as, is, is a dangerous term to use. It's something that, especially in biology, suggests creationism or suggests intelligent design, which is not a popular thing to talk about. But um, so we've gone all the way to the direction now of looking at, well, somehow life and everything else arises just from the interactions physically of matter. Instead of the older views which said, you know, we can look at these processes and in our imagination, for instance, begin to see patterns, begin to see higher order processes. And I think that's what you may be when you relate, when you talk about symbolism, Heiner, is this idea that the symbol captures a picture in the imagination of a higher process. And so that's a way that we can begin then to say, well, there's this higher order process. We can dip down and look at those material parts of that. But again, it's important not to lose that view of the higher process. And that's what I you might refer to as the alchemical or maybe the phenomenological approach that, that is able to include both those poles between matter and consciousness. So Paul, can you give us um an example of how in medicine, I know that you, in addition to teaching students, you see patients in the clinic, or you're doing both at the same time, teaching the students as you see patients. How might you think about a disease that a patient comes in with combining these two perspectives? Well, a good example is, um, and this comes from my interest in herbal medicine, in, in the conventional way of diagnosing in the modern biomedical sense, we we come up with a disease diagnosis. So an example would be mi migraine headache, maybe migraine with aura, and it's given a number, a code, and everything else. And, and um, as a naturopathic physician, part of my job as a primary care physician is to make that diagnosis first. But that's not enough to, at least I found, not enough really now to commence treatment. What one has to do next, and this is more coming from the traditional senses, is to look at that migraine patient and to see that, well, if we look at maybe 10 migraine patients together, we see there are different subtypes of migraine patients. We see that, well, in this particular migraine patient, we might be able to find um, a digestive disturbance, a food sensitivity or food allergy, which might be contributing to systemic inflammation, uh, you know, leading to that migraine. Maybe in another, it's related more to the stress response and the adrenal axis. In another, it might be related to a functional liver condition where maybe they aren't able to process uh, sex hormones and whatnot uh, through, the, through the liver, so they accumulate in the system. So these different metabolic subtypes or patterns begin to arise. And we have tests that we can follow that, but in the clinic, what we often depend on are more qualitative tests, looking at pulse, for example, or tongue diagnosis or skin texture the way their uh, nail beds refill with pressure, those sorts of thing, qualitative assessment tools. Um, so our next step in 
working with clients is to say, okay, this client, we've diagnosed the migraine versus another type of headache. But now we look at the subtype of migraine and the pattern. And then once we understand that pattern, the idea here is that then the treatments that we have in natural medicine are not really aimed at that disease migraine, but they're aimed at the pattern. They're aimed at correcting, for example, that digestive disturbance or that liver imbalance or that that um, uh, stress imbalance, so that the traditional treatments don't really work by treating diseases, and hence that's a way of research that's a bit limited with especially herbal medicines, but they're working to balance physiological patterns. And um, again, the pattern is seen as, as something uh, qualitatively in the clinic. And that is, of course, the method of Chinese medicine where you have something called bian zheng, uh, pattern differentiation, and you uh, supposed to exclusively proceed uh, in a therapeutic context uh, by differentiating these patterns rather than just differentiating diseases. I, I find it interesting um, that you mentioned these patterns, but then you were sort of listing more Western glandular patterns. And is that a system that is out there already, or is your personal does that come from your background in anthroposophical medicine, or tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. The interest I had in linking the more traditional patterns with uh, modern pathophysiology uh, began with my studies in Chinese medicine and then in anthroposophical medicine. Um, but I was also very interested in digging into the literature in, in conventional medicine. And as I begin to dig into a number of different conditions, it's very interesting that much of the research that supports a pattern way of thinking, for example, um, one particular pattern we have in Chinese medicine is something known as blood stasis. And um, that represents a pattern where there's a sort of circulatory insufficiency or stagnation in the tissues, where the blood is not flowing as adequately, there's maybe some tissue hypoxia or not enough oxygen there and so forth. Um, interestingly, many chronic diseases now have been connected with what is being called endothelial dysfunction. The endothelium is the tissue that lines the capillaries. And um, if these cells can't dilate properly, then red blood cells can't get into the tissues. And literally, the tissue will starve of oxygen. And then the cells begin to not fully die, but they become less functional in that tissue. And so many chronic diseases, for example, uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, um, chronic liver diseases, uh, for example, chronic viral hepatitis, cirrhosis, uh, many chronic pulmonary diseases now have been correlated, not to mention diabetes and high blood pressure, have been correlated with endothelial dysfunction. And so here we have the nuts and bolts from a, from a biomedical perspective of something that traditionally has been observed, been observed for a long time. Um, and it's been captured not through looking at the tissues and minutia, but rather just looking at the patient assessing these more qualitative measures in their pulse and tongue and so forth. Um, so I think that's an interesting area where these two worlds now can collide. Um, the traditional approaches can suggest maybe other areas to look at. The biomedical approach can suggest areas maybe we didn't think about in the traditional approaches and maybe novel ways of using therapies in that way. And so they both can be used synergistically. One of the things you alluded to earlier was that there are different um, ways of perceiving. I think you alluded to that. There are different ways of of understanding these different levels, like the level of the physical matter, the level of higher order processes. 
Is there a way that you can come from your system? Is there a way that you can come to understand more directly these other non-biochemical levels of existence? Or? Yeah, I think the the question of ways of knowing or perceiving is is really fundamental here, and that that speaks to method. You know, how w we look at a phenomena, what are we looking at? What is it that we're gleaning from that? Um, kind of the simplistic approach is to say we look at something, a patient, and we just see them, and then we know something. Well, anyone who's studied perception knows that when you see something, you have a whole sort of system behind what you're seeing. You're picking out certain details, and that was the interesting thing working with all these, these other physicians in that clinic. The same patient, again, certain characteristics were noticed by one group of people, another group of characteristics by another group, so we were all looking at the same patient, but picking out different things. And so it became, became clear to me that it's all the same patient, but we were using different modes of knowing to look at the different levels of the patient. So my uh, work in anthroposophy um, led me to the, uh, the work of the poet that you mentioned, Heiner, uh, Johann von Wolfgang von Goethe, the German poet. Um, uh, Goethe actually, uh, in the early uh, 1800s, developed an alternative way of doing science that began that includes the observer more in the process of doing science. The kind of standard today in science is to get the observer out of the picture as much as possible. But Goethe felt that we have a lot of inner impressions that come to us about phenomena that are just as important as the outer observations, and that we need to take both seriously and that both can tell us a lot about what we're looking at. Um, and Goethe laid out loosely, and other authors have taken this further, for example, Rudolf Steiner, the Austrian philosopher, developed this further. Uh, most recently, uh, Nigel Hoffman wrote an interesting book about the four modes of knowing. Um, and Nigel Hoffman, and Goethe in particular, link the modes of knowing to um, sort of elemental approaches to the world. So, for example, in the old Greek way of thinking, the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, to Goethe and to Hoffman, represent four modes of knowing, not so much four elements. So, for example, in the earth mode of knowing, most of us today are pretty familiar with that. That would be the, the modern scientific way of knowing, that in earth you try to observe something externally very exactly. So, Goethe spoke about uh, using what's called exact sensorial perception, where you attempt to, if you're studying a plant, for example, you really look at that plant closely and observe it and draw it and everything else and learn everything you can about it. That's the first mode of knowing. And again, that's the, the modern scientific mode of knowing. Um, the next mode of knowing would be the water mode of knowing. And this is a mode of knowing that one turns a little bit more inward and begins to observe processes in time. So, for example, instead of just looking at a plant as something at one point in time, begin to see that plant as a series of stages that grow and connect those images in the mind's eye. And then one begins to see processes then emerge. For example, how leaves spread in a certain way in one plant is very different than how they spread in another plant through time. And so this is a, another a higher mode. Of, of understanding. So is that involving simply the earth stage over time or is there some other perceptual ability required? There's some other perceptual ability and again it's it might it might make a little more sense speaking about patients. Um, 
again, going back to that migraine patient, the earth mode would be making that migraine diagnosis and maybe looking at the mechanisms behind that. The water mode would be saying, this is a damp heat migraine. This is a dry heat migraine. This is a cold, damp migraine. Again, those are qualitative terms that could be translatable to mechanism if one wanted to, but they're a higher order that emerges and that you need to almost engage a different inner sense to see that. They can't actually be brought out just by looking. You have to use an inner sense to, to, to gather that. Um, that's the water mode. So it's very different. And, and we could just say in the sense of where traditional medicine has, you know, has developed from and then where modern medicine is developing, that modern medicine really focusing more and more on earth, dissecting those pieces, and then trying to piece them together. Rather than stepping back and watching these processes unfold in time and then beginning to see those higher order processes. So again, the jump from earth to water is the ability to see a higher order process that's not visible at that lower level. Another analogy here would be reading a book. We could dissect, for example, any book. We can look at each letter and character in detail and look at the mechanics of grammar and how they fit together. But doing so, the meaning of the book is lost. You can't actually get the entire meaning of the book just by looking at the letters. Something else at a higher order emerges. The meaning comes out at a higher level. And that's, that's somewhat akin to this jump from the earth to the water, that a new order of understanding is emerging. From the water then, um, uh, Goethe spoke about this as well, that after doing these exercises where one imagines, for example, in the case of a plant, watching that plant grow and unfold in time, you watch it grow forward, you actually reverse the images in your mind's eye back, back from the full-grown plant to the seed, from the seed to the full-grown plant and so forth, that's all water. After doing that exercise for a while, it creates an inner space in the mind. And Goethe spoke about how at this point then, one can just surrender those images, but remain focused in that inner mental space. And information flows in, in that silence. So it's creating an inner silent space where now something even new emerges from just looking at those images. A new understanding, a new image, or a new feeling. There's sort of a a gesture that one begins to see standing behind that phenomena. So this would be an even more subtle sense. In the case of working with patients, we might say this would be the jump from looking at physical patterns to patterns maybe in the emotional life, where patients talking to us and they're saying that everything's fine and they're describing their digestion, and then suddenly it strikes you that they're seriously depressed. There's nothing that you saw particularly, but yet it's something that just emerged in a moment, in an instant. And then you question the patient, suddenly they reveal maybe a plan, I've had this several times, a plan for suicide. Mm. And this wasn't something that was picked up just by literally going through their case. It was more where one had to create an inner silence as they're speaking to be able to access that information. And you're still talking about the water mode of Actually, perception. at this point, this is the air mode. Ah, yeah. The air mode. So we've gone hop higher. So the water will be working with those, those images in the imagination. The air requires a third mode, and that is the mode that in the anthroposophical schools they refer to as inspiration, the inspirative sense. It's more of a feeling cognition, where you're feeling your way, there's an inner feeling that comes. 
In Chinese medicine, one way I tend to see this is that this is a way that we use to perceive subtle phenomena like qi, for example, that there's an inner feeling of movement, uh, an inner gesture that comes with, a, with a, a working with the client. Um, that, however, is not the end, that, that Goethe and Hoffman and Steiner and others reveal that there's actually a fourth mode of knowing, the fire mode. And that is where, in the fire mode, um, one has a direct knowing, a direct intuition, um, maybe as to the source of the patient's illness or the obstacles that are uh, uh, in inhibiting them at this time so they can't progress forward. This is the intuitive mode of knowing. Um, I think what's interesting about listing these four modes of knowing in a somewhat linear way is that it teases them out for one, but it shows that actually there's a progression from earth to, to the fire mode. There's a progression from the, the scientific way of knowing to intuition, that it's not a direct jump, that, that one can actually develop exercises to take one from the physical into the more spiritual intuitive. Um, and this requires an inner cultivation to, to practice those steps. It also sounds like it's not, it takes it out of the realm of something um, like a esoteric gift that someone might have that they're given that no one else can explore. You just have to believe that person or not into something that actually has a method, a technique, and has a rational process involved. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's very important <clears throat> that this idea that, you know, intuitive gifts, especially with clinicians or, or with anyone, it's something that maybe some of us have developed better over time, just like maybe some of us observe phenomena physically better over time. But these are all trainable skills. They're something that all of us can develop. Um, and it often requires simply having the right tools to develop, the right tools to practice in the right way how to develop those inner senses. And Paul, in conclusion then, um, would you think, because this is always an important part of uh, modes of knowing that there is an assumed hierarchy, that, that there's only one type of science, and uh, that what you called sort of the basement uh, foundational mode, the earth mode here, uh, is what we call modern science. And what is happening in uh, common integrative ways that you use this earth mode to then look at these other modes and of course, uh, because you're looking at processes when your equipment is made to look at things that very often you don't see anything. And then you say there isn't anything there. And uh, just like in homeopathic medicine, it is, uh, you know, you can make higher potencies from lower potencies, but not the other way around. Uh, it is certainly like this in Chinese medicine, and if, if I understand you correctly, the medieval alchemists and also Goethe and Steiner were saying similar things. While we all need that earth mode, uh, if at all there was a hierarchy, it's these higher modes of knowing you can use to look at uh, and superimpose in a certain way on these more basic uh, modes, but more difficult the other way around. So that true integrative medicine really requires not so much somebody with a Western framework, modern scientific framework, looking at 
these other modes of knowing that both the Eastern and Western traditions of holistic medicine offer, but really that it is very important for thinkers in our tradition of the holistic sciences to use these higher modes and symbolic modes of knowing and describing things and apply them to the data of Western medicine. Yeah, I, I think that's very well said. I, you know, the the something that strikes me studying the modes of knowing is that really um, all of them are important. And when we begin to focus on one versus another, I think that's when we become a little biased in a particular way. So I think the importance is to exercise all four modes of knowing, to, to maintain a type of inner subjective objectivity, if that makes sense. And I think that's where the earth mode can really help us stay honest to the phenomena. But it's important also to realize we have these other modes of knowing we can't forget. And they're extraordinarily important and give us valuable data, valuable insights into the, pa into the phenomena we're looking at, whether it be a patient or a plant. Um, and that, that um, is all part of the higher, the higher method. And that seems like a great place to conclude for today. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming in today. I'm Laurie Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. If you are interested to pursue topics of holistic medicine and integration with Western medicine and uh, Western traditions of holistic thinking more and become, for instance, a student of Dr. Kalnitz, then go to ncnm.edu where you can find out about a career in natural medicine uh, and classical Chinese medicine or go to classicalchinesemedicine.org for more information. Join us next week for another episode of True Nature Radio. Mm -hmm.